Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So one of the most famous paintings of the Baroque era is Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. It's this incredible, powerful, beautiful, life-size rendering of a moment Jesus describes in Luke chapter 15, where this wayward son returns home in disgrace and finds the embrace of his father. What a lot of people don't know is this is actually Rembrandt's second painting of the prodigal son. In 1637, when he was 30 years old, he painted another one that was this bright, vivid, exciting picture of the prodigal living it up in a brothel. That's why it's not on the screen. Uh, Surrounded by women and liquor, and Rembrandt painted his own face onto the prodigal son. But 30-some years later, in his very last painting before he died, His final message to the world, it's clear that Rembrandt's understanding of the story had shifted pretty dramatically. The colors in this one are muted and dark. You can almost feel the shame and the pain and the brokenness of the kneeling sun. And the light in the painting unmistakably drives you to the compassion of the Father. And in this painting, Rembrandt didn't put his own face on the prodigal. Instead, he made it as ambiguous as possible because his hope was that everyone who saw his painting would be able to see themselves in the Father's warm embrace. He wanted people to understand that the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is our story, yours and mine. It's the story of God's interaction with all of humanity. And he also wanted people to understand that even though we call it the parable of the prodigal son, the main character isn't the wayward wild son. And it isn't his hardworking, self-righteous older brother. The main character is the father. And the father's not just the main character. He's the most prodigal one of all because prodigal means reckless and extravagant. And the way the father loves his sons cannot be described in any way other than reckless and extravagant. In our last few weeks in this Lost and Found series, we've kind of dug into each one of the characters. We spent some time talking about the younger son. And then last week, we looked at the older son. And this morning, we're going to close the series by looking at the father. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to Luke 15. It's about three quarters of the way through, sandwiched between Mark and John. If you don't have a Bible handy, no worries. You can follow along in the screen or on the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids need a Bible, we have a whole bunch of them for a whole bunch of different ages out in the lobby at the next steps table. They are our gift to you, so please take one before you leave today. Now, this morning, we're going to kind of jump around in the story a little bit. So I want to do a quick recap for those of you who maybe weren't here. In Luke 15, Jesus got confronted by this group of hyper-religious guys called the Pharisees, and they were frustrated with him because they felt like he was being a prodigal. He was being reckless with his reputation and his responsibility as a teacher because he was hanging out with sinners. These people that weren't as great or as holy as the Pharisees. And like, Jesus, you got to stop doing that. And in response to their critique, Jesus told them three stories. 
The first one is the story of a shepherd who left 99 sheep behind to go chase after one lost sheep. And the second one was a story of a lady who, who had 10 coins and one was lost. And so she tore her house apart to find her one lost coin. And then he closed with a story of this son who came to his dad and said, hey man, I'm pretty sick of waiting for you to die. I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. So can we pretend you're dead and you just give me my inheritance right now? And shockingly, the father did it. He sold off part of his land and gave his kid the money. And it begs the question, why would he do that? Like the kid took the money, ran away from home, blew it all on wild living, just partied till it was gone. He ended up empty, alone, and starving. And you're like, couldn't the dad have seen that coming? Like, what was he, some sort of an idiot? Like, what did he think the kid was going to do with the money he gave him? Invest in a 401k? Mine some Bitcoin, get in a couple millennia early on the, like, the crypto markets. Like, of course the kid was going to do this. And it's like, I don't, I don't understand at all why this dad gave this kid the stupid money. But, but he did. And then he sat on the porch and he waited for his son to come home. And one day, off in the distance, he saw his son coming home. And we read that he ran to go embrace him. And because of the cultural difference, we often don't like stop to picture in our minds what it would have meant for this father to go run and embrace him. But everyone listening to Jesus did, and they knew like, wow, that's a really undignified thing for him to do. Because back in the day, grown men didn't run at all. So for him to run to his son meant just tossing his dignity out the window and love. And part of the reason it was undignified was they wore cloaks and sandals. I don't know if you guys have ever run in sandals, but it's not a great idea. A couple weeks ago, my niece was at our house and she decided to go for a jog in flip-flops. And you're all going to be surprised to hear that at one point the pavement caught her flip-flop and she bit it into the street and came up with a giant scrape. And I looked at her and said, Micah, if only your parents had warned you that flip-flops are not good for running, this could have been avoided. Like, kids are fun. So the dad wasn't sitting there in sweatpants and Nikes. He's wearing, like, sandals and a cloak. I don't know if you've ever run in a dress. I haven't, but I imagine there's a reason why it doesn't happen, right? To, to run in the cloak, you got to, like, hike it up and show your legs to the world. And so this guy, like, I mean, just picture, this had to be a funny moment. He sees his son, he hikes up his cloak, and he just runs in his sandals, like, ha, <laughs> like, I'm surprised the son didn't fall over laughing when he saw it happen. But he gets there, and the son's like, nice legs, dad. Holy smokes. And then he starts launching into his speech about how he's sorry, and he wants to earn his way back into the family. And his dad throws his arms around him. He's like, I don't care about any of that. Dude, you, you don't have to like pay me back to be in the family again. I get to decide who's in this family and out of this family. And the only qualification I've ever had for you is whether you want to be in, and here you are. You were lost, and now you're found. You were dead, and now you're alive. We've got to celebrate. So his dad throws this massive party, and then the older brother comes in from working out in the fields, and he hears what's going on and realizes that his awful, horrible, no good, very bad little brother has come home, and his dad threw a party, and it infuriates him. Like, he won't go in, and so his dad humiliatingly has to leave his own party and go beg the older brother to come inside. But this older brother's a performer. 
He spent his whole life believing that his good behavior and his hard work earned the Father's love and earned the Father's blessings, because that's what he's really after too. Both sons want to control the Father's stuff, not connect to the Father's heart. And he won't go into the party because he knows if he extends some undeserved grace to his unworthy little brother, that basically means his performance didn't count for very much. And that's the end of the story. Jesus kind of leaves it hanging there. We don't know whether the older brother went to the party and reconciled with his father and his brother or whether he didn't. But the one thing we do know for sure at the end of the story is that the father would do anything and pay any cost to have a relationship with his kids. And as we look at the character of the father this morning, there are a couple of things Jesus says about who he is. And Jesus very clearly here is equating the father to God. There are a couple weird things the father does that I think are complete game changers for us. And I want to highlight them because I think they shift our understanding both of who God is and who we are. In our prodigal moments where we're running from God and we're pretty convinced that we are so far gone and so messed up we could never be loved again. And in our performer moments when we're self-righteously trying to like earn our way into heaven and we're more concerned about our performance for God than our relationship with him. And the first weird thing the father does happens right away. In verse 12, it says, Jesus continued, there's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. A couple weeks ago, we said that the word for, for property here isn't the normal Greek word for property or possessions or stuff. It's the word bios, which means life. Jesus literally says he divided his life between them and he gave the younger son his share. And again, I'm pretty sure he knew what the younger son was going to do with it. And it's really difficult to wrap our minds around why he would make that choice. Like his future and his past and his identity were tied up in his land and he had to sell some of his land. He had to slice off a piece of who he was in order to make this happen so that he could fund his son's idiotic partying. That doesn't seem like a very smart decision. It seems like a reckless thing to do, right? And I think our question when we read this, like why if he knew that the younger son was just gonna throw away all the money, did he sell the land and give it to him? I think that question mirrors another question that a whole lot of people in our world ask. If God knew we were going to sin, why did he create us in the first place? Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you've been asked that question. Most of us in the room have probably heard it asked at some point. Like if God actually knew what we were going to do with the freedom he gave us. If he knew we were going to turn our backs on him and mess up the world so badly that all the suffering and all the loss and all the pain that we have to endure as part of daily life in this shattered space we inhabit was going to be just the reality of the world. If he knew that ahead of time, why did he breathe life into humanity at all? I think here Jesus actually gives us an answer to that question, but before we can get to the why, we have to answer the what. And by that I mean, what is God's ultimate goal? 
What's God's purpose? What was his dream for creation in the beginning? Because if we don't understand what the Father is doing, we can never understand why he does some of the ridiculous things he does. That was the older brother's problem in this story. He didn't know the heart of his father. He didn't get the father's purpose. And so he couldn't figure out, like, what scoreboard is my dad using that leaves me in a space where my performance doesn't matter the way I think my performance should matter? And we can tell that he's confused by that in verse 29. He looks at his dad and he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father answers, he says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Because Jesus is giving us a picture here of the father's heart. The father responds with relationship. Before he says anything else, before he addresses any of the concerns of the older son, he front loads his response with relationship. And what's crazy is the word that we translate son here isn't like the normal formal word for son. It's this really intimate term in Greek that probably is better translated into English like kiddo. Like his son comes and he's furious at him. He's like, oh, kiddo, oh, my boy. You are always with me. Now you're always doing good work. Now you're always impressing me. You're always with me. Connection. And then he says, everything I have is yours. I don't care about you working really hard so I can get more stuff for me. Just take it. Take whatever you want. You never had to ask me for a goat to celebrate with your friends. You could have just taken one. I wouldn't blink at that. I'm not worried about your work gaining me more wealth. It's never been about that at all. It's all yours. I want to give it to you. I want to bless you with it. I want you to just take it. My dream has been that you would join me in this family business so we could work together. I just wanted to have fun building something beautiful alongside you. Because my prayer this morning is that every single one of us would walk out of here knowing at the core of who we are that that's God's desire for us too. God wants the same thing for you that the father in this story wanted for the older brother. He wants connection. He wants to know you and be known by you. This is God's ultimate goal. God wants children who choose to work with him, not slaves who have to work for him. That's it. That's the whole big idea of creation. That's why God made us, even though he knew we were going to sin, even though he fully understood that we were going to turn our backs on him and run away the first chance we got. Even though God knew that our sin would so break the world that all the suffering and all the pain we see around us would result, he created us in love anyway because he desperately wanted connection and relationship. He wanted children who choose to work with him, not slaves who have to work for him. He didn't make us robots so that he could pull the strings or press the buttons and we'd have to do it because love isn't real then and connection isn't real then. And this idea 
that God created us in love, for love, for relationship. It's not just the big idea of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It is a load-bearing truth throughout the Bible. So much scripture is built on. It's on the very first page. If you have a paper Bible with you right now, you can turn it to the very first page. Actually, not that one. That's probably a table of contents or like a copyright page. The fifth page, wherever Genesis starts, right? In Genesis 1, as God's creating the world, speaking it into being, he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We've talked about all this before, but just a refresher. The word that we translate image here is this Hebrew word, salem. And pretty much everywhere salem shows up in the Old Testament, we translate it idol, not image, idol. God is incredibly intentional and careful with words, which means this is not a mistake. And even the preposition here, the way it's used, should probably shift from in to as. This verse could literally be read, let us make mankind as our idol in our likeness. I realize I throw that up on the screen, and for a lot of you, your heretic warning lights are going off. You're like, beep, 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 beep. But before you get pitchforks and burn me at the stake, give me a minute. Let me explain. We use the word idol a little bit differently than the Hebrews used Salem. Like when we think idol, we think false gods. These little statues that people made, and then they would like bow down and worship them, and that's pretty dumb. Like how stupid do you have to be to worship something you made? out of wood or metal or, or something, or in the modern world, green pieces of paper in your pocket or an image on a computer screen or whatever it is for you. It's bad idea to worship false gods. But what we got to understand is in the ancient world, the people weren't actually worshiping the little statues. They were worshiping the spirits or the gods those statues represented. The idols, Salem, were made to be a physical representation of a metaphysical reality. They were meant to be a visible picture of an invisible power. And even kings back in the day started to make Salem. Nowadays, we call them statues. And they'd put them up and be like, hey, I'm not here physically right now, but look at the Salem, look at the statue, look at the idol, and remember that I am ruling over this place. And so when people made idols in the ancient world, they were hoping that the gods would manifest their power and their presence through this physical representation of who they were. So let us make mankind as our idol. Who are we? We are made. We are dreamed up. We are knit together. We are spoken into existence to be the physical representation of the king in his kingdom. We're meant to be a picture that all of creation gets of who God is and how God loves. That's why in Exodus, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God was like, hey, no images of me. Don't try to make an idol. Don't do any salem. Don't try to carve out anything that might represent what I look like to the world. I already did that, man. I made you. Like, I don't need you to try to, to do anything else to make my power more real in the universe. I want to pour out my power and my presence and my love and my purpose and my meaning and my hope to all of creation through humanity. That is who we are. That's who we're made and meant to be. That's why God spoke us into existence and that's why God is all about what God is all about. That's why his big idea 
Even after we rebelled, even after we treated him poorly, even after our sin shattered our own lives and the world around us, that's why his big idea has always been to invite us back into his family, back into our created, creative purpose, to be his sons and his daughters joining with him to create a more beautiful future, to be a part of the story he's writing for the world. That's what God wants. We're made to represent the father in the family business. But here's the catch. Representation requires relationship. You can't represent somebody you don't know. And you wouldn't want somebody who doesn't know you to represent you. As Americans, we should understand this. We built a whole revolution on it, and we're going to celebrate it next week. Right? The 4th of July isn't just about saying, like, I don't usually eat a burger, brat, and six hot dogs, but I need the energy to blow stuff up. Like, that's part of it. That's the best part of it. But it's also about this principle of no taxation without representation. We told King George, like, hey, you don't know us. Get somebody in there who knows us, who can represent us, or leave us alone, or fish your tea out of the harbor, man. America. That's how we roll. All right? Representation requires relationship, but relationship requires trust. You can't have a close relationship with somebody, and you can't pull in the same direction as them toward a common goal if you don't trust them. See, God's big idea for humanity is built on relationship, and relationship requires trust, and that is the root of the human problem. We see it with both sons in the story. Something inside our souls is naturally prone to, to wonder and to doubt that God is really trustworthy, that God is really good. Both of the sons in this parable trusted in the goodness of the father's things, but not the goodness of the father's heart until he demonstrated it in a really specific way. He gave good to his younger son when his younger son deserved bad. I mean, that kid had been awful to his father, to his brother, to everybody around him. And in response to his badness, he received love and welcome. See, if God gave us good when we are good, like in response to the good things that we do, that'd be great and it'd be a clear path forward, but it would never convince us that God is good, just that God is fair because we earned it. We deserve it, Right? We're convinced that God is good when he gives us good in return for our bad. When we understand that we've rejected him, that we've rebelled against him, that we've hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us, and we deserve nothing other than condemnation, nothing other than being cut off from his family, and then we receive grace. Grace shows us that God is good. Because when we are bad and we deserve bad, and someone gives us good, we know that they are good. They're the good one. Like at the end of this story, one of the two sons knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his father is good, and it's not the performer, not the one who was pretty sure he was great and he deserved everything the father ever gave him. It's the prodigal who was very aware of who he really was and what he really deserved. And because of that, he understood the magnitude of the father's love and the unconditional nature of it. Because I think we spend so much of our lives, we just waste our lives away chasing after a love we already have. 
Because we live in this world where all love is conditional, and so we make the assumption that God's love must be conditional too, but it's not. It never has been. And so my prayer this morning is that all of us could walk out of here with a clear picture of how we have received good in exchange for our bad, how we sinned and shattered our lives in our world, and we ran away from our Father. And in response, Jesus came looking for us. In love, Jesus stepped out of eternity into the human story to chase us down and pay whatever it costs to bring us back into his family. And Jesus did that because he is the true and perfect older brother. See, one of the craziest things about this story for me has always been this sense that the third story didn't quite fit with the first two Stories. Jesus tells a story of this shepherd just leaving all the sheep behind to go find this one lost one. Like he went looking. And then he tells a story of this lady tearing her house apart to find her lost coin. And then he tells a story of a dad just sitting on the porch in case his son maybe came home. And growing up, I always felt like that story doesn't quite vibe with the other two stories. Why is he just sitting there? Why isn't he out searching the same way the shepherd and the woman were searching for what was lost? And maybe you've been confused by that too, but you know who wasn't confused by it at all? The original audience. The sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees who were standing around listening to Jesus knew why. It wasn't a question for them. In their culture, it was very, very clear. The father wasn't out searching for his lost son because the older brother was supposed to be. See, in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was the older brother's job, it was his duty to his dad, to his brother, and to his society to go hunt his younger brother down. He wasn't supposed to be out in the fields working, making money for his own self and for his own future inheritance. He was supposed to be searching for his younger brother until he brought him home. And everybody listening to Jesus understood that. And so the way Jesus says what he says here isn't just like an accusation that the Pharisees are just as far from the heart of God in their goodness as the sinners are in their badness. It's also like a twisting of the knife. It's Jesus looking at these guys and saying, you are not doing what you're supposed to be doing. God gave you a bigger mission. He created you for a grander purpose than just sin avoidance. That ain't it. Come on, you guys. This thing that you're mad at me for doing, this thing you're criticizing me for doing, hunting down people who are hurting and broken and lost is the very thing your lives are meant to be all about. And part of the reason the Pharisees hated Jesus, part of the reason they just wanted him out of the picture and ultimately killed him is that most of what he said didn't go over their heads. They didn't miss it. They didn't miss the context, that he was pointing them back, subtly, not so subtly, to the very foundation of their nation, to this moment when God called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm inviting you to be a true older son. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be my son. And then we got this mission. I'm going to take you and I'm going to turn your descendants into a great nation and I'm going to pour blessings out on you so that, so that you can be a blessing to everyone around you. 
God looked at Abraham when he called him and said, through you, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. He's like, man, we got this family business and I want to invite you into it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all the people around you, all the people you crash into, every human on this planet who I created in love and for love and through you, I want them to see who I am. I want to invite them in. That's the mission, Abraham. Will you do it with me? Will you do it with me? And that thread of God, like inviting his people into the family business of chasing down everyone around them, again, is woven through the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. When Jesus called his disciples in Mark 1, he's like, hey, if you guys come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. We got a mission. We got a family business. It's the fishing business. We're going to go hunt some people down. And at the end of Matthew, before he ascended into heaven, he gave him the great commission He said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all I've commanded you. This mission, this family business, this great purpose is helping people crash into God and follow him fully. And that's why Revision Church exists. That's what we're here for. We are still about the family business. You can find it or you can find it written on the wall out there. Revision Church exists to help people meet Jesus and follow him fully. And one of our core values you can also find on the wall out there is that found people find people. We've been found, so we got to go find people just like the younger son. We were lost, and we were rebellious, and we were running, and God chased us down. And our response to that cannot then be to become self-righteous older brothers who are so disgusted by the bad people and the evil people and the people who don't know God that we just do our own little thing And we try and avoid sin and we try and get it right without ever chasing after the people God loves. That's what the Pharisees did. And that's what broke the heart of Jesus when he talked to them. We have to be about the family business of finding lost people because that's what found people do. And listen, there's a cost of doing business. It will cost us to be found people who go find people. It will cost us our time, and it will cost us our passion, and it will cost us our effort, and it will cost us our comfort, and it will cost us our money. Just like it cost the older brother to bring the younger brother back in. Everything the father owned was his, so every dime the father spent on the younger brother for the rest of the younger brother's life. Every calf that got killed in the service of that celebration of him being home was money out of the older brother's pocket. And for us, it will cost us to be found people who go find people, but it's a price we can pay because of the price our true older brother paid to bring us into the family. Jesus paid everything so that we could be welcomed back in. And that's what God did for us. And that's what God is inviting us to go do for the people around us, all the people we crash into who are desperately yearning to breathe the oxygen of God's love. And how do we do it? I think Jesus sets a pretty cool example in Luke 15. Like, he did not go about finding lost people by screaming at them. He didn't go door to door or stand on a street corner and condemn them. He didn't fire off a social media post about how they were evil. Like, tax collectors are demons. We can't let them enforce their agenda. True or not true, that's not the way Jesus did it. He rolled up his sleeves and he got proximate. He showed up where they were and showed love to them right where they were. And he didn't do that because they were just fine the way they were. They weren't. He didn't do it because what they were doing and how they were chasing the world was okay. It wasn't okay. 
It was absolutely destructive to their lives and the lives of the people around them. He didn't show up and love people because they were perfect or even because they were good. He did it because they were loved despite their failures and their imperfections. And he knew his love could call them out of the sin and the brokenness they were in toward something better, toward the lives that they were created for. And he's inviting us to call lost people around us to the exact same thing. This parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is an incredible invitation into two things. It's an invitation for us, number one, to know the goodness of God. To know that despite the fact that we are bad, he is good and grace is available even though we haven't earned it. And number two, it's an invitation to make his goodness known. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be true older brothers. To be constantly in pursuit of God and the people he loves. Because I said this a few weeks ago, I'll say it again this morning. You are the voice and the imagination of God wrapped in skin. You are dreamed up and knit together to know the goodness of God and make his goodness known. To know the goodness of God and make his goodness known. And so this morning, as we finish up this Lost and Found series, I got a simple question for you, or challenge, really, for everyone in the room. I think for all of us, no matter where we're at on our faith journey, no matter what's happened to us this week or this morning, all of us constantly exist in a space where we need to take one step forward toward one of the two sides of that equation, toward knowing and more fully trusting that God is good or toward making his goodness known. And again, we're created for both. That's on the first page of the Bible. That's what it means to be his salem, to be an idol, to be the physical picture of the king in his kingdom through which he pours out his power and his presence and his love over all of creation. We're meant to know him and to make him known. But for you this morning, which one of those do you need to take a step toward? And are you willing to take it? Will you do the vulnerable thing and take a step toward really trusting that God is good and that his love for you is immeasurable and unconditional no matter what you've done, where you've been, or what's been done to you? Or will you take a step today toward making his love known, toward giving love away and showing people what this good news looks like that changed everything for you? Will you step in today to your created, creative purpose of making God known and knowing that he's good? Will you be a part of this family business? Will you create a better future for the world and write a better story by trusting the goodness of God and pointing the people around you toward it. I think if you will, as you do, what, what all of us will find is the hope and the meaning and the purpose our souls are longing for and we'll find the life that we were made for. Will you guys pray with me? Well, thank you for not abandoning us when we ran away from you. Thank you for chasing us down in, in our badness and inviting us back into the beauty and the meaning of relationship with you. I pray for all of us today as we walk out into a dark world that's sometimes frustrating and broken and horrifying and everything else, that you would fill us with a deep sense of your unconditional, immeasurable love, of your goodness, and you'd fill us up so much with that that we'd be able to pour it out all over the people around us who are desperate, desperate to know who you are 
and how you love. Lord, would you use us today to make your goodness known. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.